You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. I know I seem to say this every week, but uh, there's some good stuff in Isaiah 50, in the, the latter half here of Isaiah 55. But then, of course, uh, would you expect me to say the opposite? Well, you know what? The first half of Isaiah 55 was great. The second half was kind of boring, so we're going to skip. No, I don't think you would expect me to say that. Um, but in all reality, um, I mean, the second half of Isaiah 55 is pretty good, too. Uh, there's some good stuff going on here, and it's meant to be a hope. It's meant to be an encouragement to us. I guess I should go to Isaiah and not 1 Corinthians. It's going to be hard to find chapter 55 in 1 Corinthians. But in Isaiah chapter 55, we are reading here about an everlasting covenant. And last Wednesday night, I uh, spoke about, uh, well, what what it says here about this everlasting covenant that is made between God and Israel. And then we also looked at how it kind of parallels to us as the church as well, because we also are God's children now uh, during this time. And uh, he talks about, hey, you know, I, I've given you this everlasting covenant that all, if you're thirsty, come, I give you waters freely. If you're hungry, come, you don't have to bring money. In fact, I'll give you milk and wine as well, not just the water. I'll give you the sweet stuff. I'll give you the fattening stuff. I'll give you the, the, the nutrient rich stuff as well. You don't need money. All you have to do is Hearken diligently unto me, verse 2, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. In verse 3, he said, incline your ear and come unto me and hear. Hear and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. He tells them to incline their ear unto him and come unto him and listen, and so that their soul will live, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, just like I made with David. And he brings up David. And we talked about David last week. He talks about the sure mercies of David. And those words there, the sure mercies are purposeful. David David needed mercy, didn't he? He absolutely, of course, so do you and I. But when we read David's life, we think, man, I would do some of those things that David did not in a million years. I guess David probably would have thought that too. But he found himself, well, you know, um, temptation leads us, you know, lust when it uh, is conceived bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death, the Bible says. And that was the progression that David went through. But he speaks here of David in chapter number 55. And look what else he says. He says, behold, I've given him, David, for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. So I gave you your King David. You saw his rise. You saw his peak. You saw his fall. But then you also, here's the witness. You saw the renewal and the reconciliation. That's why it's a witness. After all, we talked about this last week too. What is a witness? A witness is you being able to say, I've been there. I've done that. I've experienced and Let me tell you about it. And so when I am being a witness for Christ, it's let me tell you what happened to me when I got saved. 
I can't tell you what happened to everybody, but I can witness from my own experience because I was there. That's what a witness does. David can witness to them about the mercies of God. Because here we're talking to a group of people. We're talking to the, the, the Jewish folks who are turning their hearts against God. They're hardening against God and judgment is about to come in the form of the Babylonian army is going to come in and wipe out lower Israel. Uh, we often refer to them as Judea, uh, mainly the city of Jerusalem. is going to wipe them out. And it's going to take them and scatter them. And for decades, they're going to be scattered across the Babylonian Empire. And then the Babylonian Empire becomes the, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And then we're told, it's prophesied that 200 years later, there's going to be a king come along by the name of Cyrus the Mede. And he is going to release Israel to go back to their home of Jerusalem. And not only that, he's actually going to help them help fund the rebuilding of the temple and of the walls of Jerusalem once more. And so remember that Isaiah is speaking to a rebellious people who have yet to go through all of these things. And so he says, let David be your witness. David started out sweet. David started out right before God. David started out obedient. But then there was a time where David began to get, as some might say, a little too big for his britches. David began to think that he could handle things on his own. In fact, he began to think that he didn't need to be at the battles. He began to think that he was above the temptation or at the very least the consequences of that temptation. And then as he sat there on his throne, thinking that he had all of his bases covered, God sends the prophet or the preacher to him to point his finger at David's face and say, no, as a matter of fact, you are the man who is in need of destruction because of your sin. After David said, I want to kill this man who stole that man, that man's one little lamb that he loved so much. He needs to be killed. And Nathan says, no, that's you, David. You're the one in need and deserving of destruction, of judgment because of your sin. However, God will show mercy if you repent. And David did that. David repented. We could look through many other men during that same time period who did not repent. Who, like King Saul, when King Saul was confronted by Isaiah, King Saul did not, oh no, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, uh, Samuel. When King Saul was, Saul was confronted by Samuel, King Saul, he tried even harder. Says, no, 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 he lies. I'm just going to make sacrifices. That's all that these, these sheep and bullocks are for. No, I'm, I was just trying to help you, Samuel. He didn't repent. He hardened his heart and God destroyed him. And we can find many other examples similarly. Well, I don't want to spend too much more time on verses we've already covered, but verse number five, he says, Behold, thou shalt call a nation that, know, that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. He says, I'm making this everlasting covenant between myself and you, Israel, like the one I made with David. He can be a witness to you of my mercifulness and forgiveness. And then he said there in verse 5, there's going to be a day where there's going to be nations that you don't even know. You don't even know anything about them, but you know what they're going to do? There's going to be nations that are going to run unto thee. Why? Because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, for he hath glorified 
thee. Now we get to verse number six. Verse number six, I'll read verses six and seven. It says this, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It said there, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. No doubt you've heard this verse used many times before. The prophet is, is impressing here this idea of urgency. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. But I think sometimes when we hear this verse, we think of the urgency on the wrong side of things here. So we have a tendency to think, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Well, does that imply that God is going to hide himself then at some point? Does that imply that now is the time where God is walking in the street, but before long he'll disappear behind closed doors where we can't enter? So hurry up, now's their chance. I don't think that's what is being pointed at here. It isn't that God is hidden and can only be found now. It is that he can only be found when our hearts are inclined to seek him. Think about it like this. Maybe you were out working in the yard and you dropped your wedding ring. Don't know where, you have no idea. You just know that you had it on your hand this morning and you no longer do and you've been working out in the yard all day. Maybe even worse, you've been working out in the, you know, in the vegetable garden, which means that dirt's been moved and who knows, it could be buried under six inches of dirt right now or under a potato or something. Uh, with, you know, covered in water, uh, and your mind begins to think, oh no, I'm never going to find this ring again. And so you go and you rent a metal detector, but you only have it for three days. So you rent this metal detector for three days. Are you going to only go out there and use it three, four minutes a day? You go out there on the day number one and, uh, okay, I'll go look for this ring. Where would I might have lost? Ah, maybe over there, three or four minutes of searching. That's enough. Day two, three or four minutes of searching. Day three, this is your last day to have the metal detector. This is your last day to find that priceless ring that he probably didn't buy you from a pawn shop. Okay, you know what? This is my last day in searching, searching for three or four minutes. And then it gets close to dark and you think, uh-oh. This is my last chance to go and find this ring. Seek ye the ring while it may be found. Is it because after this, the ring is going to disappear? No, it's because after this, you are not going to be able to seek it. I know that's a faulty illustration to a point, but understand this. It is a gift from God to be able to seek after him. He can only be found when our hearts are inclined to look for him. So seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Look at what it says next. Let the wicked forsake his way. What else does the prophet want to impress upon here? Not, not just the sense of urgency, but also the need for repentance here. Now the word itself is not used, but look at what the words are that, you, that are used. Let the wicked forsake his way. And it says, and return unto the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. What we see here is the wicked forsaking their way. What is their way? It is the way in which they are typically acting, speaking, the things that they are typically doing, which is involved in their wickedness. And so they have to decide, determine that this is wrong and I must 
I will forsake it. To forsake something is to make a determination, not that it is, that it is not enjoyable. It is not to make a determination that you no longer want to do it. To forsake something is to make a determination that it is either wrong or that it is defiling or that it is wicked, that it is something that you no longer want anything to do with, and you turn yourself away from that. But you got to turn yourself to something. Let the wicked forsake his way, and it says, return unto the Lord. The prophet here is, is impressing upon them the need for repentance among even God's people. If you look at the term repent and repentance throughout Scripture, you see it used in a variety of different ways, referring to both saved and unsaved, referring to even God himself. And to repent, in, especially in this case, we see it, it is the wicked forsaking his way. Some would say, well, that's work salvation. If you have to forsake sin and turn to God, then you're saying that that's how you get saved, by forsaking sin and it is work. No, absolutely not. That's what looking to the Savior is. When I take and I turn my eyes upon Jesus Christ, I am absolutely turning it off of everything else. And I'm turning it upon Him. Why? Because He is my sole and only hope for eternal life. It is when I turn my eyes upon my Savior, Jesus Christ, that I'm answering the question, why do I even need saved in the, per in the first place? What is he saving me from? Well, it is from my sins. It is from my sinful walk. It is from my sinful life. And so turning my eyes upon Jesus is turning my eyes away from my flesh and away from my sin and return unto the Lord, it says. Isaiah also makes an important point here when he says, and the unrighteous man, his thoughts. You know, wickedness can be demonstrated by our actions. And no doubt, if your actions are demonstrating wickedness, you need to get that settled 100%. Hey, listen, if, if you are disobeying or rebelling against parents, disobeying or rebelling against uh, local government or even federal government, if you are disobeying or rebelling against God, on the outside, those actions, yes, 100%, those need to be so you need to seek forgiveness for those things. Like we talked about Sunday morning, about seeking, or in Sunday school, seeking forgiveness from God often. Every time the Holy Spirit convicts. But what about, what about what goes on inside our minds? Unrighteousness can also be found in our very thoughts. And this is the battleground. You say, no, the battleground is what goes on with my hands and feet and with my mouth. And no, no, what goes on with your hands and feet and mouth is the result of what is the result of who wins that battle that goes on inside the heart and inside the mind. Whether I choose to touch or whether I choose to hit or whether I choose to steal, whether I choose to go to the places I ought not, that is a revelation of who won the battle on the inside. The battle's there. And the battle is always going to be there. There'll be times where it rages fiercely, and there will be times where it is abated. But don't, don't get too comfortable because the battle will rage once again. 
And beware lest a man think he standeth, take heed. Lest he fall, the Bible says, take heed. Lest he fall. If you think that you are able to withstand that temptation, you fill in the blank with something you think you would never do, take heed. Lest you fall. The battleground is in our minds. Paul knew this when he told um, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I like, I like that thought of bringing thoughts into captivity. You know, some people are a little bit more spastic, you know, in their thoughts and imaginations than others. And it's a little bit more difficult to control their thoughts and imaginations. You tell one of my kids to go to another room and do something, and they have already been distracted by 17 other things by the time they actually make it to that room and have no earthly idea what they're doing in that room, and then just go sit and play somewhere until you come looking for them. And uh, you've heard me talk about that in the past. But hey, adults, we're the same way sometimes too. Some of us are spastic when it comes to our thoughts. It's just we, we, we see uh, that, that yacht or we see the car or we hear something, we see something, we feel something, and boy, it just immediately begins to draw up thoughts into our minds. Bring your thoughts into captivity. There are certain things that need to be bound up and put off into the corner eternally. And there are some thoughts that need to bloom and that need to be uh, that need to be watered, and that need nutrients from the Holy Spirit and from, from the Word of God. Paul understood this. In Romans 12, 2, how we must not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. The renewing of my mind. Interesting here that Isaiah mentions this. He said, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And what? And he will have mercy on him. He will have mercy upon him and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What a glorious promise here that when we return to the Lord, he will have mercy upon us. What a wonderful promise here that when we return to Him, He will also abundantly pardon us. You see, the problem though, the problem with Israel at this time, and the problem with you and I very often, the problem with many unsafe folks, it is not that they brought their sins to God and God said, I'm sorry, that, I, that is too great. I cannot pardon that. That's not what happens. There is no lost person who has come to Christ and said, I'm willing to place my faith and trust in your work on that cross to save me from my sins. And Jesus looked at that pile of sins and said, no, see, you see, that's just too many. I can't, I can't, you know, I can't, I don't have enough blood to shed for all of that. You see, when I hung on the cross, my shoulders weren't big enough for all of that. We know that's not true. That he bore the sins of many, it says in some places, but he bore the sins of all. He took that penalty. It says he will have mercy on them. What is the problem then? The problem is that we fail to return to the Lord. The problem with the lost is that they fail to turn to the Lord at all. Not that he rejects them. Not that he says their sins were too great. And the problem with maybe even a young person who has grown up in church and has turned away from the Lord. 
Why do they still run from the Lord? Is it because their sin was too great? No. Was it because God rejected them and said, no, you know what? I'm only detecting 85% sincerity here. No, that wasn't it at all. It was that they never turned to the Lord. Or, in this case, returned to the Lord. But what a great promise we have. And he will have mercy on him. And he will abundantly, abundantly. He didn't have to say abundantly. He could have just said he will pardon him. I mean, that would have been, that would have been sufficient, right? If you return to the Lord, he will pardon him. That's it. That's all you need to know. But Isaiah, through the inspiration of God, wants to use this superlative abundantly. I, I need to describe it in the greatest way possible. Uh, so I want to use this grand word here, abundantly pardon you. Again, impressing something upon us. Isaiah is impressing upon us God's great desire to pardon and to forgive and to show mercy. I mean, if God could forgive and pardon and show mercy upon David, He can show mercy and pardon and forgiveness on me. If God can pardon and show mercy and forgiveness on Saul, Saul the accuser, Saul the persecutor, Saul the killer, Saul the imprisoner, Saul the hater of the brethren and of the church, Yet God forgave him. And not only did God forgive him and show him mercy and reconcile him, but then he turned him around and put him all the way on the opposite side of the spectrum. Before he was the greatest hater of the church, and now he is the greatest proponent of the church. A writer of over half of the New Testament. That's this term abundantly. Abundantly. I don't care how great your pile of sin is, I can and I will abundantly pardon. You know, abundantly also tells, gives me this idea of there is no end. Sometimes we think we have reached the ends or the limits of God's grace and of God's mercy. But you see, grace in and of itself implies that there is no end. Think about it. What is grace? Grace is favor that I did not earn. So if I continue to not earn it, well, can I use it up? Now, you may be able to use up my grace. <laughs> I am imperfect and I am human. So you might be able to use up my goodwill and my limit to forgiveness, even though there should not be a limit to my forgiveness and there should not be a limit to my grace. I'm, I'm not giving any excuse here. But we certainly cannot limit or, or use up God's. Look at verse number eight. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Says, I, I don't think the same way you think, and, and, and I don't behave in the same way you behave. In fact, there is such a vast difference between my thinking and your thinking and between my behavior and your behavior that it's almost like the distance between man on earth and God up in the heavens. And, and we don't even know how to quantify that, to be frank. Especially then, they didn't know how to measure that in miles. 
Like we know today just how far away the moon is from the earth. They had no way of measuring those sorts of things then. I don't think the same way you do. We get into a lot of trouble when we expect that he should think like we do. When we ask questions like, why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Now, we are made in the image of God. That means we can relate to God's thoughts, but we cannot master them. Neither are your ways my ways. God doesn't act the way we do. He does things his way. And frankly, and sometimes much to our chagrin, his way is not our way. And he does things differently than we would do them or does things differently than we would want them done. But let's not get into the trouble of expecting God to act the way we would act. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, you know, what's the distance between God's thoughts and ours? Well, as the heavens are higher than the earth. Now think about this. In Jesus Christ, he came down from the heavens to the earth. He crossed that great divide that we are incapable of bridging. I am not, I am not capable of building a bridge or of willing a bridge or obedienting. I know that's not a word, but just pretend it is. You know, I'm building a bridge with my obedience. Okay. That's what it means. We can put it in the dictionary now. Obedienting a, a, a bridge between here and heaven. I'm not capable of doing that. And so Jesus did it. He came down. And because of that, we can have our thoughts transformed to be more like his. That's what it means in Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. Become more like him. To become more like him when we're standing in the kitchen grouching at each other. Why do we need to grouch at each other? I don't know. Sometimes it's just because it's become a habit. It's just because it's become the groove in which we've chosen to live. But we don't have to respond to each other that way. In fact, often it only takes one person to change the way they respond to their spouse to change the dynamic of that relationship. You know, it's hard to be mad at somebody who is choosing to love you in return. It's hard to hate somebody that you pray for and are trying to serve and do you know, good to, we're to be conformed to the image of a son, conformed. When I think of the term conformed, I imagine seeing myself and Jesus Christ, who probably had a different shaped body than I did. Maybe he was taller. Maybe he was more masculine, whatever the case is. And I see my body morph into his shape so that I become like him. My voice changes so that it sounds like him. And I know I'm going overboard on the illustration, but I'm being conformed to his image so that when others are watching me behave, whether it's on the t-ball field or walking through Walmart or in the garage when I, you know, smash something with a hammer, when somebody, whether it's my children or my neighbors or anybody else are watching the way I react and behave to frustrations and difficulties, especially those things, do they see somebody who has conformed into the image of Jesus Christ? But understand this, the distance between us, our thinking, and God's thinking will never be closed. You might be tempted to think that when you get to heaven, that you'll be like God. 
Well, there may be certain parts because we will get a um, incorruptible body, which is going to be everlasting. Now, that does not mean we were everlasting in the other direction, but it means we will be everlasting into the future, eternal in that direction. But God is eternal both directions, past and future. And he's present. And the fact is, he exists outside time altogether. We can never really do that. But when our salvation is complete, and, and one day when we're united with the Lord in glory, the distance is going to be pretty close. It's going to be as close as possible. The difference and distance between God and man is revealed. Why? Is it meant to discourage you? Well, as a matter of fact, you little peons, I am way up here, and I am far smarter and far more capable than any of you, and the fact is you'll never be able to reach and achieve what I am. Is, is that meant to discourage us? Now, if it's your boss talking like that, you're going to be thinking, you know, praying imprecatory prayers inside your head and thinking mean thoughts, but it is not meant to discourage us from seeking him. It's not God saying, you know what? you just keep away. I put a big distance between us so that we can keep our separation a little bit. That's not it. He desires for us to seek him. And what it's doing though, is it's keeping us humble as we seek. So that it is not a, a method of us seeking after God and getting you know closer and closer to God. And eventually we get so proud in and of ourselves and our spirituality that we begin to think we're like God, like Satan did. And then that pride turns into rebellion, and that rebellion turns into, well, death. Now, he wants to keep us humble as we seek. Listen to this quote. You may conclude that it is not intended that you should understand the infinite, for you are told that his thoughts and ways are far above you, but you are required to seek him while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Think about the two sides of this coin. He says to seek him while he may be found, and to call upon him, to return to him. And on the other hand, he talks about how his thoughts are far loftier than ours, and his ways are far loftier than ours. He's not trying to create separation there. He was trying to create humility, and he desires to be sought. And he will be found if we seek him. Look at verse number 10. It says this, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. For as the rain cometh down, he said at the beginning of verse 10. And he talks here about the water cycle. Of course, you learned the water cycle back when you were in like first, second, third grade, somewhere in there. And they taught you that um, the clouds, they 
come and they roll over top the land and they begin to build up in their moisture to the point where they stack up on top of one another and block out the sunlight and you get these dark clouds. And then the water begins to condense upon a little a little pieces of dust up in that air. And then as the water droplets get heavy enough that uh, the air itself can no longer suspend them, those water droplets begin to fall down to the earth. They fall through the atmosphere and hit the ground. And of course, after they hit the ground, they will make their way down sometimes into the water table or they will make their way into the small little brooks and streams and those little streams and creeks will make it to larger streams and then rivers and then make it back into the lake or into the sea or and eventually into the ocean where once more it is evaporated back up into the clouds and they come back over land and they rain and you have that cycle. You know the water cycle. But let's think about what that rain does. It isn't a useless cycle. It is that rain which causes our grass and our trees to be green. It is that rain which causes our wheat to grow and our soy and corn around here uh, to grow. It is that rain which gives us the water for our animals and cattle to drink and for you and I to be able to have access to water as well. So he uses an illustration here of the water cycle. And look what else he says. He says, for as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Pause. He's about to go from his illustration to the reason why he used it. But notice what else it does. It maketh, the, it, it, sorry, it, maketh it bring forth and bud, the earth that is. Why? So that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the to the eater. So the rain comes down and it causes the plants in the farm to grow. As the wheat grows, it produces the fruit there at the top of the wheat, the grains at the, at the head of the wheat. And then uh, the you know, workers will come through. Now the machines will come through and will cut down that, that wheat and will harvest the grains at the very top. Some of those grains are going to be used for planting because next year, you know, more wheat is going to need to be planted so that cycle can go around once more. And so some of those grains are going to be taken away and they may be coated or something genetically done with them, um, or coated with something else, put in a bag and resold uh, as seed for the following year. And then the most of it is going to make its way uh, to a mill where it is going to be ground up into powder. It is going to be sifted. It is going to be maybe bleached among other things, and it is going to be packaged, then it's going to be sold. Why? So that we can take it and we can bake bread and pizza and other things with that, all from that grain. And so let's go back to the picture. God sends the water from the sky to the earth so that it'll cause the food to grow, so that it can then become seed to grow new food and also bread for the eater. Okay, you say, Pastor, you're making a big deal out of this. Um, where are you going with this? The same grain that gives seed to the sower also gives bread to the eater. You know, this is all talking about God speaking, God uh, giving his word and it not returning void. That's what it's setting the stage for here. In fact, that, that's what it says in the latter part of that verse. He said, so shall my word be. So the water here is his word. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth and shall not return unto me void. I'll pause there because I don't want to get too far into that yet. 
God's Word is this water. And as God's Word is preached and you hear it, you're like the, the grains of wheat or the, like the stalks of wheat that are growing up. And sometimes we can take the truth from God's Word and we can use it to replant and see somebody else get saved. We can use it to see new spiritual life in somebody's heart. But then we also need to take it and we need to eat it ourselves. The same Word of God can be milk to the baby Christian and it can be meat to the grown Christian. How many times have you read Isaiah 55? I know as I go and I study these chapters, I, I find things in the chapters that, that, I don't, that I would not have gotten through just cursory reading, through just my normal everyday reading, and I'm not stopping to dwell upon things. This is the meat, the meat out of Isaiah 55. Maybe a child, if, as they read it, they would have gleaned some smaller things. That would be the milk of Isaiah 55. But the power here, the, the, the fulcrum of this illustration is the Word of God. And so let's get to that part where he says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God's word has something to accomplish. He says that it, it shall accomplish that which I please. In other words, God was, God's word was not given by accident. It was not given as a, side, as a side note or an afterthought. God's word was given to accomplish a specific purpose. He doesn't just speak to hear himself talk. His word is not empty or lacking in power. That means that God's word has purpose. Do you look for God, the purpose in God's Word when you read it? Or is it just reading the next set part of your schedule, your reading schedule, or just the next chapter? But do you look for purpose? As we study through Isaiah, I have to look for purpose. What is the purpose that Isaiah is relating this to the people of Israel? What are they supposed to be getting out of this? Not just the meaning behind the words, but his intended purpose, God's intended purpose to them. And then I also have to think of something else. How can I take this and apply this to myself? And then, of course, naturally, therefore you. How can I take Isaiah's and God's intentions to Israel and make application of that to us? But God's word will accomplish. He speaks to accomplish a purpose. It says, it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. In other words, God's word doesn't just barely get the job done. God's word isn't just passable. It doesn't just get by. It shall prosper. It is rich. It is full of life. It always succeeds. It always fulfills God's purpose, even when man fails to fulfill God's purpose. Even when man fails to take heed to it, <coughs> God's word does not return void. This principle is clear. Now the preacher, he may ignore, he may dilute, he may obscure God's word so that very little of it goes forth. And when little goes forth, that little is going to succeed. But how much better if the whole counsel of God went forth to succeed? Again, that's why I love chapters, you know, studies and verse by verse as I go through whole books because it forces me to just do it all. 
The stuff that I enjoy, the stuff that I don't enjoy, the stuff I know a lot about, the stuff I don't know a lot about. And in all aspects of the Christian life and walk and history and archaeology and, you know, everything that comes in in between. And it forces me to just study and therefore to digest so that I can then return to you the whole counsel of God. And so the preacher and me, sometimes he'll, he'll, as as some preachers call it, lay an egg, you know, a bad sermon. (laughs) They got up and they thought it was going to be wonderful. And then it just, the delivery went wrong or something just went wrong. And uh, they left the pulpit dejected thinking it wasn't much of anything. And maybe they didn't realize it and it still wasn't much of anything. Well, God can still use that. Yes. And sometimes we, we try to justify or excuse, you know, a poor sermon by saying, well, God's word doesn't return void. That's true. But how much better would it be if more of the word were presented so that God could then accomplish more to succeed? Look at verse number 12. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands instead of the thorns shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Again, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting sign shall not be cut off. We see so many indications, even in just chapter number 55, of the eternality of the people of Israel being God's children, that he does not, he is not cutting off God's children and replacing them with the church forever. No. We see many indications in chapter 55 that God still intends to go back to and uh, to go back to his people Israel. But let's look at the verses again. For ye shall go out with joy, verse number 12. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. You see, when God's people turn to him, listen to him, and his word does his work in them, you know what follows? Joy and peace. Now, contrary to what the TV preachers may say, health, wealth, and lack of problems are not the things that are listed here. It says joy. You see, joy is not happiness. Happiness depends upon the situation. It depends upon the moment. I can be happy because everything is going my way or I'm experiencing something fun, but then my happiness subsides when somebody's upset with me or I have a toothache or you know it rained on my parade, so to speak, and then my happiness subsides. That's not what joy is, though. Joy is much uh, more enduring than happiness is. Joy doesn't mean that I walk around with a smile on my face every second of the day whistling a happy tune. Now, you may see me whistling a ha- or hear me whistling a happy tune and smiling, and that's wonderful. I got, you know, accused far too often in college of walking around like I was mad. People would always stop me, and there was a specific person that would always be like, Nathan, stop. Put a smile on your face. I was like, well, what? <laughs> well, what were you thinking about? Uh, I don't know, class, where I was going. I was just thinking about what I was doing. Well, smile. Well, I'm going to my mailbox. I mean, there's nothing to smile about that. Or I'm heading to my third period class. And I got a quiz, you know. I don't have anything to smile about that. I'm just thinking, you know. They said, well, you look bad. That's just how I am. I don't know. My sister said they used to tell her the same thing in college too. 
But we look at this verse about joy and peace. You see, peace, peace does not mean a lack of problems. Peace is what comes in the midst of those problems. That's the kind of peace that the Lord gives. Peace in the midst of the storm. Peace that even though the waves are high, we have the Savior in our boat, so I'm not worried about them. So what happens when we turn to Him, listen to Him, and allow His Word to do its work in us? Joy and peace are the result. The joy is so great in this verse that even the mountains and the hills and the trees of the field join in. Man, the mountains and the hills sing like, uh, you know, the hills are alive with the sound of music. You know, and the trees clap their hands. Of course, we can imagine, you know, trees with their big old branches smacking their hands together and leaves and, you know, acorns and stuff falling out of the trees. But what's the point here? Is it that the mountains literally begin to sing and that the trees literally begin to, you know, sway and clap the branches together? No, it's all in my perception, though, of it. It's in the reader's perception as they are filled with joy as they are filled with peace, and then they look out upon God's creation, they think, man, what a beautiful creation God made. But when somebody is sour and bitter and so self-centered that they forget to look outside themselves or ever, even a Christian, forget to think about what God is doing in their life, even in the midst of this sour or bitter time, man, they look at the same mountains that you may look at, you smile and you find them glorious, and to them, they're just in my way. What's that tree doing here? Or they don't even bother to notice them. So it's not that the mountains sing. It's not that the trees are literally clapping the hand. It is in the perception here of the person who is looking. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Where there was barrenness or reminders of the curse, now there's going to be beautiful, useful trees. And you think about the difference between barrenness and fruitfulness. The picture is clear. You have the glorious work of God's reconciliation. God takes away the barren and the curse, and he brings forth beauty and fruit. Now, I'm not saying, guys, that he's going to put the hair back on your head and Take the belly, you know, and scoot it up here so that you have more muscles up higher. You know, I'm not saying, you know, ladies, that he's going to make you beautiful. That's not what we're talking about here. But he is going to change your spiritual walk and your spiritual life. And it's going to change your outlook. Why? Why does he do this? Is it just for our benefit? Well, that may be part of it. But he answers the question in the very last verse. Why does he do this? It says, it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. When the Lord restores and reconciles us, it's all done for his name, for his glory. But also, when the Lord restores and reconciles us, his work is secure. Like it said there in the very last verse, shall not be cut off. Now he's speaking to Israel here. And I think the same promise certainly applies to us. That when we are reconciled to God, he doesn't just get tired of us. 
I'm sorry, you lied too many times. You backslid for far too long. No, he doesn't get tired of us. When we reconcile to God, yes, there's joy and there's peace, and he's doing it for his glory, but the work that he has done is secure. The devil cannot take it away. No other man can take it away. I can remove myself again from God's presence, yes. But no one else, and especially not God, he will not cut us off. I think it's a shame that so many preach, even independent Baptists, preach the idea that God reneged on his promise to Israel and said, "Uh, you know what, you went too far, sorry. Uh, I'm going to use somebody else instead. You know all of those covenants I made with you? Yeah, forget it. You know all of those promises, everlasting promises I made to you? Yeah, you know what? I'm just going to wink at that and turn my attention someplace else. God's not capable of doing that. And that ought to be an encouragement to us. It's a shame that others think that he can do that because then he could do the same thing to you. He could say, well, you know what, Christian, you've sinned one too many times. I think I'm just going to withdraw my salvation from you. Well, you know what, Christian, you haven't read, you haven't even cracked your Bible in years. You haven't darkened the door of a church except once in 10 years. You know what? You know what, Christian? I'm just going to pull my promise. I know I said everlasting. I'm going to pull that. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't do that. I think that ought to be an encouragement to us as well. So chapter 55 was about that everlasting covenant. And we see how he used David as a witness, as a testimony to his people. And that same David can be a testimony and a witness to us. Praise the Lord that God forgave David for what he had done. Goodness. What he was guilty of. And that God restored a right relationship. Now, as as I have said before, there's consequences that David had to go through in his family because of his sin. But praise the Lord that there was reconciliation there. And that's because God was willing to. He's full of mercy toward David, toward Israel, and toward us. Some encouraging verses there in chapter number 55. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.